Welcome to Cross Section, conversations at the intersection of faith, news and culture. Hi there and welcome to this episode of Cross Section. For me, this has been one of those weeks where I've just found the news really difficult to read. There's been a lot of grim stories and difficult stories. It's been one of those weeks where the brokenness of the world has just felt really apparent. From people losing their lives in a truck in Texas as they're being people smuggled to the sentencing of R. Kelly for 30 years in prison for using his celebrity status to sexually abuse children and women. Today, we're joined by Alicia Edmund and Danny Webster. We are actually all in the same room, which is very exciting. And I can't promise that we're going to lift your spirits in today's episode. And if you feel that you've just had enough this week, that's okay. Today's episode might not be the one for you. But here at Cross Section, we seek to digest the news through the lens of our Christian faith and think about what difference Jesus makes to the stories we read. Now, I'm going to try and start us in a lighter place. The first item of slightly depressing news this week is that two British tennis players, Andy Murray and Emma Raducanu, are out of the Wimbledon tournament. Alicia, Danny, what do you make of the tournament so far? I mean, to be honest, if Federer's not in it, I'm not really following Wimbledon. So I'm already boycotting Wimbledon in that sense. It is a shame. I think I was hoping that Emma Raducanu would get through at least the first week, definitely on a journey in terms of her career development. And as for Andy Murray, I feel that his injury has kind of prohibited him as a player. So I wasn't expecting him to get very far. So doom and gloom, Federer's not in it. I'm not watching it. Next. Well, Andy Murray, I was watching the match and when he won that third set, I was like, okay, it's the, the fight back's begun. He's going to do it. He's going to do it. And then he didn't. Uh, as soon as he lost his serve in the fourth set, it was over. With Emma Raducanu, there just seems to be so much pressure on her after her run at the US Open that she hasn't been able to match that form. I hope that she will be able to. But let's not think they're the only British players. Uh, Cameron Noe fought through in five sets. Uh, we're recording this on Thursday afternoon, and Katie Bolter and Heather Watson have just won through to the third round. So there, there is hope for, for British players making it through to the second week, and we'll just have to see. I think the pressure on sports people is really interesting because obviously Serena Williams is out of Wimbledon fairly early doors as well. And I was listening to a commentary with Joe Conte, the, an ex-British tennis player, who said, well, she is only human, she's superhuman, but she's still only human. Mm-hmm. And kind of thinking, we just, we put sports people um, up against such unrealistic standards. And apparently in, in Emma Raducanu's kind of closing interview from Wimbledon, she said basically like, I'm 19, I just had a gap year that just went really well. And I'm, I'm looking forward to Freshers Week, which I thought was quite refreshing. Do you think, yeah, do you think in society today we basically treat sports people like gods? I think we put a lot of expectation on them. And I think when people perform well, there's an expectation that people will continue to perform well. And when you see people at the very top of their game who do perform well consistently for a long time, it does create this sense that, they're infallible, that they're always going to do that. And actually, you realise that that's not going to case. Serena Williams is 40. And now, 
you may not think that's particularly old, but as a tennis player, it's incredible that she's still playing at the top level at that age. And, and her achievements are remarkable. But you do re- it does remind you that, yes, all of our bodies are uh, frail. We're not able to do the same things at 40 that we might have been able to at 25. And tennis players lose tennis matches. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure we'll see in the Football World Cup next year. This year, this later this year. Later this, this year. year. The, the emotions of the country rise and fall with our football team. Yeah. So yeah, perhaps we'll grow more. But the soon. cricket team, the England cricket yes, team. Yes, some hope. There's, yes. there's hope. There's the new era of cricket uh, with Ben Stokes as captain and the incredible white wash of New Zealand, 3-0. So yeah, that's what I'm far more interested in cricket than football. Now, a huge story this week. I'm sure everyone will have heard about it. The US Supreme Court, the, the US's most senior legal body, has overturned the Roe versus Wade case, which made abortion a constitutional right. 26 conservative states are either certain or considered likely to introduce new abortion restrictions or bans. And this is one of the stories this week that I've just found really difficult to process. I know lots of other people, lots of other Christians have, have felt the same way. Because mm. although I, I believe that, that every human life is precious from the moment of conception, that that tiny human bears the image of God, this decision has come mixed in with voices that I don't wholeheartedly agree with, that I don't believe hold the value of human life in other areas such as gun crime or racism or violence against women. Alicia, what, what do you make of the accusation, accusations that have been thrown around this week that people are not pro-life, they're pro-birth? I think it's important to make a distinction between the evangelical and political voice in the state and how it has a ripple effect around the world. The evangelical church uh, and kind of its activism, its policies has been loud and very active and very vocal on kind of abortion rights for many, many decades. And so if you was to ask either an individual here in the UK or the US, what does evangelical US stand for? They'd be like, it's all about pro-life. And so I guess there's some level of criticism there in that it hasn't always been clear or obvious that the evangelical voice cares about life from conception through to death. I know that that's not true. They do very much care about all these issues, but it's they're the loudest on this topic. And I guess that's what's the pushback's been from kind of activists. That's the pushback from kind of sports people, journalists, both like all mediums of culture. That's a massive pushback. And just reading uh, Sherilyn Holloway, who is pro-black, pro-life. She's the founder of that organisation. She made this point about it's so important to to value life across the spectrum. And she says this, to live abundantly, we have to be able to acknowledge the systems that have been put in place to keep us from doing that. And I think that's an incredible kind of starting point to live abundantly, that John 10.10 passage that we, we reference. Life isn't only in the womb, it starts there. But as Christians, what is our voice? What is our advocacy? What is our engagement on life outside the womb? Disability rights, family, provision for women, healthcare, all these sorts of things, end of life. We need to be equally as loud as that. So I can kind of 
here, the, the criticism towards the US in that sense, but here in the UK, I know of many organisations, churches, that are advocating across the spectrum that it isn't just about pro-life, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's about pro-life from conception through to the end of life. And I think one of the problems with looking across the Atlantic to the US political scene and and how it considers these issues is the, the package politics that you see. Mm-hmm. And the package that is on the right that is most commonly associated with being pro-life also has a whole range of uh, positions that get drawn together, whether that's on free access to guns, whether that is on criticism of a national health system or that sort of approach, or even on the supportive of the death penalty. So you see a a package of politics that people look at and say, you're not pro-life consistently. So I think there is a challenge there. And I think there is a challenge to the politics to say, well, where does a pro-life ethic work its way out consistently across all areas of policy? But then I think the the charge against Christians sometimes is, you're all talk, you're not doing something. And I just don't think that's true. I think whether it's in the US or in the UK, I think Christians are at the forefront of caring for people throughout all of their life. Christians lead the way in adoption and fostering. Christians lead the way in providing healthcare and education and support. Mm-hmm. So I think the charge is used against them because of the political uh, record and the political package that is seen. But I think the practice, both here and in the States, is that Christians are thoroughly pro-life. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes we need to do a bit more and be a bit more confident in what we're saying to promote that. And this is a conversation that's that's everywhere at the moment. It's in pop culture, it's referred to at Glastonbury, which I'm sure Alyssa is going to come in with some points on that. It's being talked about amongst our peers, CEOs all over the place are sending out emails to their staff. Mm. And I think, yeah, both of what you just said is really helpful for clarifying kind of what our position is, what our argument is, the, the things that we have to back up our position on the preciousness of, of the unborn child. I think it's also really important in practical terms as people listen to this and go out into the world, into conversations that people are having, is we must remember to never assume the experiences of those that we're talking to. Statistics, uh, you know, tell us that it's likely, I don't have it off the top of my head, Alicia, do you know one in how many women are likely to have had an abortion? I would rather not misquote at this moment in time. Yeah. I'm sure someone's going to type away. <laughs> but the, what I'm getting at is that we, we can never assume whose lives have or haven't been touched by this. So as we engage with these conversations and seek to listen well and speak well, we've, we've just got to be the most compassionate people in the room. Because at the end of the day, if, if, we, if we care deeply about the unborn child, we have to care deeply about the person who's in front of us as well. Alicia, anything on on the kind of the pop culture, the Glastonbury side of of everything that's going on at the moment? I mean, Glastonbury as a festival is known as a a kind of a political kind of space. You know, its profits go to fund kind of environmental causes in terms of the artists that have been there historically, either lyrically, they're very passionate and engaged in in different social justice issues. Uh, In last week's podcast, I name-dropped Kendrick Lamar 
Uh, and if you've been watching and following the news, he himself was headlining at Glastonbury, uh, whereby he his final song was Saviour. And essentially the message behind that is that he is not the world's saviour, uh, which is an incredible message. It's very much grounded in the principle of kind of like we need to look to, to Christ in that. That's the kind of history and background he's dressed with a very expensive Louis Vuitton or had crystal crown on his head. Uh, he had blood that poured. So it was a very visual depiction of the crucified Christ. And then in that moment, he also, towards the end of the song, started talking uh, about, you know, Godspeed women's rights uh, in, in reference to the Roe v. Wade decision. And so... For me, listening upon that, I respect his artistry. I think he's incredibly creative. In that moment, I was just heartbroken that he would depict and make the assumption, which if you read GQ uh, magazine would be saying that, of course, a person of Jesus would definitely be on the side of women's rights and completely be enraged in this moment. I think Jesus would be enraged uh, for the experiences and decisions that women make, but also the life of the unborn. He'd very much... His heart is grieved by this moment. And uh, so, yeah, Glastonbury was loud. He wasn't the only artist that was speaking about it. And I guess just for us here in the UK, not to be silenced. I think that's something I'm also seeing. A lot of Christians are self-censoring on the conversation of abortion, whether it's in their peers, whether it's in their social media. I saw Jay John got a massive backlash when he posted saying babies matter. Both Christians and non-Christians went after him hammer and tongue on that. But it's an opportunity for us to talk about pro-life from birth through to the end of life and why that is, what are our foundations, what is our biblical framework, why does this matter, why is the women's choice not the only kind of advocacy point of view. So yeah. I'm really, I'm really glad you've mentioned that because I want to get into how do we actually, can we, how do we engage in this conversation as Christians who hold the kind of pro-life view in a productive way? Danny Kruger, who's a Christian Conservative MP, got pretty slated in the mirror this week. Um, about uh, about abortion. And I don't think his choice of words were constructed in the most helpful way. I think he could have phrased what he said better. What was, what was the actual line? I, I'm going to find it. But he was referring to a woman not having complete uh, bodily autonomy over That's her it. body. And actually, uh, Karen Swallow-Prior, who is a, uh, an academic in, in the US, has, has written very much about this and criticised this argument that we should ever want or expect to have complete bodily autonomy. And she wrote in an article for the New York Times last weekend, for both men and women, bodily autonomy can't mean that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want, with our own bodies, without natural consequences or obligations to others. If that is what we mean by autonomy, then no one can champion bodily autonomy without ultimately advocating harm. So I think there's a there's a coherent argument behind what Danny Kruger said. Perhaps he could have said what he said in a better way or more helpfully phrased it. But as soon as he said it in the parliamentary chamber, you could hear people yelling at him, shouting at him. It was shared on social media. Various other people shared it very widely and everyone was having a go at him. Even his mum has written in The Spectator saying she disagrees with him, saying she still loves him and she's... He's still her child. That's they, pre-leaf, This is pre uh, I did not realise that. Celebrity chef, judge on the Great British Bake Off. So 
it's, it's pretty tough when your mum takes to national media to, to disagree with what you say. It is really hard to engage in public debates around this. And I think even me semi-criticising what he said demonstrates how hard it is to speak into this area and how much there's a pressure to get it exactly right. If you're making an unpopular point, the, the pressure to put it perfectly, to put it in the most nuanced language, to make sure you say the right things in the right order, I think that, that pressure is really high, and that just causes people to back out. Mm. Like say, well, I think this, but can I get it right? You look at Danny Kruger, you look at J. John, you look at other people speaking out and the backlash that they receive. And that just causes people to fall silent. So I think we want people to be able to speak with confidence and with courage. I think actually it is important for Christians to speak well in public life, whether that's on their own social media channels or whether that's more publicly if they have those platforms. But I don't think, I think the problem at the moment is we're in a situation where people just feel unable to because of what may come back at them. Yeah, and it's a really tricky balance between a phrase, a phrase we use at the Evangelical Alliance a lot is be brave and kind. And I think it's a really tricky balance at the moment between those two things because, like Alyssa said, I don't think Christians should be silenced on this issue. But we also had someone get in touch with the podcast this week to say, to ask whether, well, firstly, they were saying how much they enjoyed cross-section. Thank you very much. Please feel free to get in touch anyone and let us know how much you enjoyed this podcast. But they were asking our advice on whether social media, whether there's anything helpful to share on social media. And my honest reflection was that I'm, I'm not sure that social media is the right place to be posting and kind of our views at the moment because the conversation is so visceral at the moment that social media isn't where isn't where we tend to have meaningful compassionate conversation mm. I'd more say I would love to have a conversation with a, a pro-choice friend and ask just ask genuine questions because there's things that you know from my perspective that I don't understand about the viewpoint or I do in a theoretical sense but I want I want to I want to hear someone explain that to me so that I can understand them better and I think that's the place in which to have those conversations I just wanted to add, uh, John Tyson, who's a church leader in New York, wrote, a, wrote an open letter, put it on his website, on the church's website this week. And I thought that was a really good approach. It brought clarity and various people have shared it on social media. You can just Google John Tyson, Roe versus Wade, and you'll get the letter. I thought that was a really helpful approach. And actually, sometimes we can look at people like that, people like Karen Swallow Pryor, who have spoken, and maybe their, their words are words that we can share if we don't feel like we have our own words. And that might be something that we can say. And again, I thought he was just helpful of, of pointing to the fact that even for pro-life Christians, this moment doesn't feel victorious. There's mm. there's mixed emotions here, and that comes from a place of compassion. We care about people who are suffering in this moment as well. I just want to close on this story before we move on to somewhat lighter things with uh, 1 Peter 2.12, which I just found really helpful this week. It says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. It was actually another colleague here at the Evangelical Alliance who pointed out that that verse kind of encapsulates what we're aiming for in this moment. People will, will hate what we have to say when it comes to the issue of abortion. 
but let us be such loving individuals, such kind people, people who care about those around us and those who feel deeply on this issue, that though they might hate what we're saying, they might want to know more about the God that we claim to believe in. So I, I really hope and pray that that helps you as you think about how to engage in this issue this week. Slightly less, uh, well, one cont contentious issue to another, let's put it that way. We're going to now discuss the announcement from Nicola Sturgeon this week that Scotland will be having another independence referendum. To help us navigate this issue, we have the Evangelical Alliance's very own policy officer in Scotland, the man who takes care of us behind the scenes on this podcast is Chris Ringland. Welcome, Chris. Breaking the fourth wall here. Yeah, this is great. So, what's the give us the lay down Scottish independence? Why now? What's going on? What's all the controversy around it? So, uh, so yeah, so as you say, this week, uh, Nicholas Sturgeon started the process of having another independence referendum in Scotland. Uh, she says that the mandate for that is based on last year's election results, where the SNP and the Scottish Greens, who are both for independence, uh, won a majority of seats in the election, and the Conservatives, Labour and Liberal Democrats were the minority. Uh, that's what she says the mandate is. So what is happening now is the Lord Advocate uh, for Scotland has lodged for a decision with the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom to see whether Scotland as a devolved nation has the legal competency to actually have a referen referendum by itself in the absence of Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, agreeing to have a referendum. You see, last time it was David Cameron, the Prime Minister, and Alex Salmond, the First Minister of Scotland, agreed through a process called Section 30 uh, to have a referendum in the way that they did. So that is not happening this time. And she said that if that it, it doesn't work like that, if it's not legal to have it within just Scotland, then the next general election will basically be a de facto referendum. In her words, that if you vote for the SNP, then you're voting for independence. So there's a lot kind of going on, and it's, uh, it's just the start of things. And it's October the 19th, 2023 is the date. Is this 19th of October date pure fiction, or is it all a ploy? to try and spark this into uh, the next general election being able to run on this platform? It's certainly a massive gamble because uh, I think they, they even kind of made a mistake kind of when they were doing the, the radio round saying if we won the majority of seats in that, then that would constitute a win. But then it was actually the number of votes that they would win in that election would actually be constituted be a, a win for yes. Uh, so there's a lot of, there's a lot kind of that, is up in the air. There's, but the way that she has framed it, uh, I suppose, from her perspective, is quite clever because she is trying to say, well, you know, if if it doesn't happen the way that we, you know, democratically should have it because of our mandate, then you know that's the greatest argument for leaving the United Kingdom. So, it's there, there's a lot of politics going on. There's a lot of complications going on, and whether that happens according to that timetable or not is is up in the air. Uh, we'll certainly be doing lots of yeah work around this at the Evangelical Alliance. Last time we produced a resource called What Kind of Nation to help churches to think about this issue and what Scotland, regardless of whether it's in the union or not, this might look like in the future. Thinking about churches and evangelicals in Scotland, is this going to be a divisive conversation? How do they navigate a conversation and issue of a potential Scottish independence? In short, yeah, uh, probably. Uh, you'll remember from 
the experience of the EU referendum, that was quite divisive. And of course, in Scotland, that was two years after the first independence referendum, which was very divisive as well, even in schools and things, because 16-year-olds had the right to vote in it uh, too. So I, I think Christians have a real opportunity and churches have a real opportunity to, to be uh, witnesses of unity across Scotland over the next year and a bit uh, in allowing conversations to happen and not putting down people for the views that they might have on this, to discuss them openly and uh, and and think things through. There's no kind of Christian evangelical answer to whether Scotland should be independent or not. So people will be on different sides of the debate. So I, I think there's a lot of uh, lessons we can learn. What a treat to have you on this side of the podcast wall. As always, please follow along with all that we do on this cross-section podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, EAUK News, on Instagram, Evangelical Alliance. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast to make sure you never miss one. Also, as I always say, this should be a conversation. We really want to hear what you have to say. So email us cross.section at eauk.org. What stories do you want us to be talking about? The final story we're going to be talking about this week is reflecting a little bit on Dame Deborah James, who sadly died this week after her battle with bowel cancer. In the last five years of her life, Deborah James, who was 40 when she died, never stopped talking about a life worth living. She did this as co-host of BBC Radio 5 Live's award-winning, lively podcast about living with cancer, You, Me and the Big C. She did charity link-ups with supermarkets, a fashion company, a floral company, all to raise money for Bowel Babe, or the Bowel Babe Babe Fund, which was to do research into bowel cancer. And she became a dame in the last two months of her life. She died surrounded by her family, and they said that she was the most amazing wife, daughter, sister, and mummy. She documented dying in a way not many people have done. And as we've been preparing for the podcast this week, I know this has brought up stuff for each of us here on, on the team. And I'm sure it has for many of you listening at home. And it will have done for your friends. So I suppose I want to ask, Alicia, in, in a moment where perhaps people are thinking a bit more about their mortality, perhaps more than, than other times, how can we as Christians, I guess, add to this conversation? What, what do we have to add that, that they might not be hearing elsewhere? I think it's moments like this that we take Jesus's words more seriously and they come alive in, in a different way. I'm reminded in John 11, where he speaks that he's the resurrection and he is the life uh, and that all who believe in him will not die. And I guess that's a starting point for me personally, uh, when confronted with the issue uh, of death, but it's the one thing that I will never skip. I might skip poor health or not have certain other issues in my life but it's the one thing that is common across all humanity depending on it doesn't matter on wealth or age or anything like that and so the word of God is incredibly foundational in moments like this to be reminded of Jesus words that he is the resurrection that he brings uh, things that are seemingly lost and dead to life uh, and that actually he promises an eternity with him uh, read on again in John 14 he talks and he speaks to Thomas and he's like I've gone ahead of you I've prepared a room for you and so that concept and mindset of eternity 
with him. Uh, that's a confidence that we have as Christians. And I guess in moments of death and loss and grief, how true do we believe that becomes at the forefront? And I guess the first stepping stone is where are we at on that journey? How much do we believe God's words in this? And how much of our lives are a witness to that resurrected life and that hope of eternity? And that I think there's an opportunity for us to share faithfully how do we respond in these moments and to give witness to Jesus in that. I think having a realistic understanding of death and, uh, and the fact that it's painful and it's hard and it, the people who are affected by it, particularly when people die when they're younger and they have young families, I think enables us to reflect on life. I was struck, there's a, a lady called Claire Fisher who died earlier this year uh, and she blogged uh, at a far lower profile level through her experience also of having bowel cancer and of dying of receiving palliative care. And so dyingwell.uk if you want to read about her experiences. And it's, it's quite remarkable the ability people can have to, to talk about life, to talk about death. And I think it enables us, I think it gives us permission to reflect and to reflect with gravity of the situation, but also with a sense of joy that actually of what we can experience, of the life we do have. And I think actually, certainly for me as a Christian, having a realistic understanding of life and of death enables me to know that life is worth living and of what we can live in our life. And I think actually that when, when we don't fear death. Uh, death is hard, it's challenging, but we don't fear death. And I think that can release us and give us a freedom to live our life for all that God created us to. Mm. Yeah, when when it comes to death, we as Christians truly do have the best news to offer. Thank you both for your contributions this week. I'm going to close today's episode a little bit differently to sometimes, to sometimes with some verses from the Bible that I found extremely comforting when I lost my grandpa to leukemia last year. He and these Bible verses are such a beautiful reminder of what it means as a Christian to have a life well lived and the hope that we hold on to in the midst of a broken world. It's from 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 6 to 8. But I am already poured out like a drink offering and the time for my departure is near. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Cross Section. Conversations at the intersection of faith, news, and culture.